Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. This morning we're starting a new sermon series called Eating with Jesus, where we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 15 and also parts of Luke chapter 14 as we try to understand some things about um, what I'm calling creating a culture of grace. How does a community centered around grace come into existence, come into being? And this morning we're just going to be looking at uh, the first two verses of Luke chapter 15. You might think of this as the charge against Jesus, and everything that comes after is in answer to this charge. So in Luke's gospel, we read, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. This man receives sinners and eats with them. Uh, Let's pray. Father, we ask your blessing on the preaching of your word. We ask that it would be living and sharp and powerful, that you would speak to us through it. In Christ's name, amen. A couple of weeks ago, I had the pleasure of having an in-depth conversation with a six-year-old. And these can be really interesting conversations. Um, I try to make a habit of not talking down to children when I talk to them. And uh, as a result of that, mainly because I don't know how to do it, I'm not good at communicating with children, so I treat them as little adults, and uh, sometimes that works well, and sometimes it leads to comic outcomes. And this was one of those conversations where things took an interesting turn. Um, My six-year-old conversation partner, Phoebe, was talking to me about her older sister, Olivia, and how her older sister has become a vegetarian something that Phoebe found really fascinating. And I actually found it fascinating, too. Um, I'm not a vegetarian, but people who know me will tell you I am uh, like a picky eater. And so I'm interested in other people's pickiness and trying to understand it a little bit. And I was fascinated when Phoebe explained to me her sister calls herself a vegetarian, but in a low voice said to me, but she's not a real vegetarian. Because she's only a vegetarian because she doesn't believe in animal cruelty. I thought about that for a minute. And I said, well, Phoebe, do you believe in animal cruelty? And she said, no. And then her eyes lit up and she said, but I like the way they taste. (laughs) So I tried to pursue the question a little bit farther because I didn't quite understand how being against animal cruelty made you not a real vegetarian. So I kept asking questions, and she insisted, no, Olivia is not a real vegetarian because I saw her eating chicken, and she liked it, and she couldn't stop. And I was a little surprised, and I tried to explain a little bit about how it could be that someone could have like a a moral conviction that they try to put into practice, but they do it unsuccessfully. It can be a struggle sometimes to live up to our values, but Phoebe was unconvinced by this at all. She said her sister could not be a real vegetarian because she was only a vegetarian on, on some sort of moral principle, and she didn't perfectly embody that idea in her actions. Phoebe, I think, was a little bit confused. She had a hard time distinguishing 
between what a person does and what a person is. And she assumed that what a person does is what they really are. She's not alone in her confusion, though. I would say that, that, that all of us suffer from a similar confusion and that we live in times that are similarly confused. As a culture, we tend to conflate our desires with our identity. We conflate our action, what we do, with who we are. Even our thoughts, we imagine, are ourselves. We are what we think. What we desire is who we are. What we do is who we are. What we believe is who we are. The art critic Robert Hughes wrote a book called Culture of Complaint and where he described the American classroom as he observed what was taking place. He said, it's becoming increasingly difficult for more and more people to distinguish between their beliefs, their ideas, and their selves so that when their ideas are contradicted, they take it as a personal attack. They become defensive because they think it's you. You know, you are, are attacking them, not just disagreeing with what they're saying. He wrote that book in 1994, almost 25 years ago. Things have gotten worse in the meantime. We have a hard time separating ourselves, our identity, from our actions, from our desires, from our beliefs. In a more recent book, Joseph Bottom wrote about our cultural moment. It's called An Anxious Age. I highly recommend it if you're interested in understanding our times. Bottom says, it's interesting to see that we live in a shifting moral universe where a lot of the moral concerns that human societies used to have are changing. For example, the way that we worry about the morality of the body has changed. Uh, It shifted its focus, he says, from sex to food. And you can see this in, in everyday practice, even amongst Christians. It's not the done thing to judge people for who they sleep with. But it is totally okay to judge people for what they eat. Right? Some of us are eating immorally, and those are valid judgments to make. It's a strange thing historically. People in the past would have been surprised that we order those things the way that we do now. But it demonstrates how much things are changing We still have the moral concerns, but about different things. What that means is, when we struggle to answer that existential question, who am I? When we struggle to come to terms with our identity, now more than ever, we face some challenges. Because we're asking ourselves who we are in a time and in a context where it's hard sometimes to see that we're not just the sum of our actions, that we're not just what we do. We live in a time when we're actually encouraged to find our identity in our desires, rather than to regulate those desires according to our identity, which is what the ancient Greek philosophers would have assumed is the right way of ordering things. We also live in a time when our moral perceptions are fluid or shifting and changing where you may be very convinced about what the right thing is and yet surrounded by people who see it in a completely different way. And in that fluid situation where it's hard to separate 
our actions from ourselves. And it's difficult to know how to judge those actions rightly. Here we are trying to figure out who we are and what our identity is. How do we do that? How do we find ourselves in that shifting world? Well, in this series of sermons, over the course of five parts, that's the question that I want us to think about. Who are we? Who are we as individuals? And also, who are we as a community of faith? Who are we as a church? And we'll try to find answers to those questions through this lens that Luke 15 presents us, this lens of eating and action. Because it's interesting, at the beginning of Luke 15, to find that Jesus is being judged. Jesus is being judged. Something is being said about who this man is based on his actions. Now, he's not being judged about what he eats. He's being judged about who he eats with. The accusation the Pharisees and the scribes make about Jesus, the complaint that they lodge, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Sometimes we say, you are what you eat. I don't think that's quite right. But we might argue that what you eat reveals who you are. You aren't the sum of your actions, but what you do reveals who you are. There is a relationship between those things. I think the scribes and the Pharisees pick up on this. They see that in what Jesus is doing, there is a reflection of who Jesus is. Because what Jesus reveals about himself at the table is the thing that we most need to see. What Jesus reveals about himself at that table is the thing that we most need to see. When they lay this charge, when they say Jesus receives sinners and eats with them, the scribes and the Pharisees think that they are making this, um, this irrefutable argument, that they are exposing Jesus, that Jesus, by his actions, has demonstrated that he's not who he says he is. He pretends to be this righteous rabbi. He pretends to believe in all of these good things, but look at what he does. Look at who he consorts with. Look at who he shares a meal with. This man who seems so good receives sinners. and He eats with them. He breaks bread with these people. And in doing so, he shows us his true colors. It's as if they feel that they have drawn back the curtain. And finally, they can say, aha, that's who Jesus really is. Don't listen to what he says. Look at his actions. Look how he lives and you can see the true Jesus, to which we, in hindsight, we look back and we say, amen. So many charges are leveled against Jesus. When you look at the story of the crucifixion, so many false charges are sustained against Jesus. This is not one of those. This is an accusation against Jesus, which is absolutely accurate. They are absolutely right in the words that they say. This man receives sinners. And worse, he eats with them. It just doesn't mean what they think it means. Jesus, through his action, is revealing his character in a profound way, in an important way, and, and arguably in the only way that you can truly come to understand who Jesus is. The great Lutheran theologian Philip Melanchthon wrote that to know Christ is to know his benefits. Now listen to these words of Melanchthon. He writes, 
But as for one who is ignorant of the fundamentals, namely the power of sin, the law, and grace, I do not see how I can call him a Christian. For from these things Christ is known, since to know Christ means to know his benefits. For unless you know why Christ put on flesh and was nailed to the cross, what good will it do you to know merely the history about him? Christ was given us as a remedy, and to use the language of Scripture, a saving remedy. And ironically, Jesus' critics put their finger on it. This man receives sinners and eats with them. That's exactly the work that Jesus came to earth in order to accomplish. It's what he's here for. Second Corinthians 5.19, Paul sums up the gospel this way. He says that, that the whole plan of redemption... And be understood in these handful of words. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. So that's the work of Christ in a nutshell. In Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself, not counting trespasses against us, forgiving those sins, covering those sins through the work of Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about, receiving sinners and eating with them. If you think about the shared meal, there is no better sign, no better picture of reconciliation than the shared meal. The Bible talks a lot about meals, about eating, about sharing. And if you really want to get into the weeds on this topic, the place that you want to go to is 1 Corinthians uh, mainly chapter 10, a little bit in chapter 8, where Paul is talking about the subject of eating meat offered to idols. Uh, if you've been in the church for any length of time, you're probably familiar with that passage. And it's fascinating on a lot of different levels because Paul is essentially uh, showing us how to do ethics Christianly. Is it right or wrong to eat meat that has been offered to false gods, to idols? Uh, a lot of us would think, well, this is obviously wrong. This is obviously a bad thing. But Paul has a very nuanced answer to that question. He approaches that question of eating in a complicated way. The most surprising thing about it, certainly to me when I was growing up in the church, where I thought in very black and white terms, um, the most surprising thing to me was, was actually... Paul treats the food itself, the meat offered to idols, he treats it as a matter of indifference. As a matter of indifference, the food itself, even though it has been cooked up on an altar to Zeus or Apollo or whoever, Paul sees that as, as not a big deal. Right? He actually says in 1 Corinthians 8, 7, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. The food itself is not the issue in Paul's mind. No matter how it was prepared, what, what false imaginary deity it was dedicated to, that doesn't mean anything. The fact that you say the name of a god that you have invented for yourself over some of God's creation doesn't turn God's creation into a possession of that false god who doesn't exist. God is sovereign over it all. It's still God's food, God's meat. But... If the food is a matter of indifference for Paul, the shared meal is not. So you may think that you settled the question when you hear that it doesn't matter one way or the other, but actually Paul continues to go, and it turns out it does matter if you eat or not. It matters in the context of the shared meal. It matters what the people gathered at the table think 
about what you're doing. We have a communal obligation in Paul's mind. If we break bread with what Paul calls a weaker brother, a person who thinks it would be a violation of his conscience, it would be a sin to eat this meat, even though we know objectively that it's not. Paul says it's not a sin objectively, but if you think it is, to violate your conscience would be wrong. It would be a sin to to go against your conscience, and it would be wrong, Paul says, to model behavior that encourages someone to violate their conscience. So when Paul finds himself at the table with weaker brothers who believe that, that there is some sort of reality to these false gods, Paul won't eat, even though the food itself is a matter of indifference. He won't do it because he does not want to tempt that weaker brother to violate his conscience. So the context of the shared meal matters. There's a communal obligation. There's also a communal freedom that Paul talks about. Paul actually says in 1 Corinthians 10, 27, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner, then eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Now, for me, as, as someone who grew up in a very fundamentalist environment with that sort of a mindset, this is a shocking statement because I would have thought if one of the unbelievers invites you to a meal, the thing Paul would advise you to do is to say, no, of course I'm not going to go. You're unbelievers. I don't want to have anything to do with you. I'm going to separate myself from people like you. I'm shocked that you would even invite me to such a feast. It's not what he says. He says, if you're inclined to go, then go and eat whatever is set before you with a clear conscience. Uh, Don't inquire into it. Don't be over-scrupulous about where did this meat come from, that sort of thing. That it's okay to do this with a clear conscience in that context, in that shared meal. The situation is different. It all has to do with who you're sharing the meal with. It all has to do with that bond that's created at the table. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul actually goes farther. He takes the Lord's table, this Christian Eucharistic meal, and he likens what happens here to what happens when uh, Jewish worshipers eat meat from the sacrificial altar. Or even, and this is surprising, he compares it to what pagans do when they eat from their sacrificial altars as well. He says that what happens there. Uh, is a participation. He says, are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? These are mind-boggling words. Mind-boggling words. That, that when the meat from the altar is eaten, it's done as a participation in that act of worship. He sees the communion table in the same way, the cup of blessing that we bless Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. In other words, we're united to one another at the table and united to the one whose table it is. And that shared meal matters. The the meal is union. The meal is a bond, a fellowship, if you will. So where the food may be indifferent, the meal is not. The meal matters. The meal can change everything. 
Now, the accusation against Jesus is that by sharing a table with sinners, he's uniting himself with them. He's not just happening to be eating at the same time they are. He's receiving them. He is eating with them. He is extending hospitality towards these sinners. He's uniting himself to the unworthy. That's the objection. And as I say, in that accusation, Jesus' critics are absolutely correct. That is exactly what Jesus is doing at that table. He is uniting himself to the unworthy. That's what the gospel does. It brings unworthy sinners like us into union with Christ himself. What Jesus reveals about himself at the table is the thing we need most to see about him. And it is the thing our city, this place where God has put us, needs most to see as well. Sioux Falls doesn't need more religion. We need more grace. This is a churched town. We live in a place where there are plenty of churches and there are new ones cropping up all the time. When you talk about planting churches, as we've been doing a lot with John St. Martin recently, when you talk about missions, oftentimes the the desire is expressed to, to go to these unchurched places, which is a good desire. It's a desperate need. But sometimes that way of speaking misleads us about the, the needs of a place like the one where God has put us. This is not an unchurched city, but neither was Jerusalem. And Jesus didn't find in Jerusalem a bunch of people without a need. Being churched doesn't mean you understand grace. In fact, being church often means that you've been blinded to it. Since I've been back in town recently, I've been getting reacquainted with our city, and I've talked to a few people over the last week who've had similar experiences, either from traveling or moving back to town after a long absence. And the people always say how much they love and appreciate this city, and I am with them 100%. Um, I love to travel. I enjoy being in other places, but I'm always amazed how wonderful this place is that God has given us. This city is better than it has any right to be. Geographically speaking, in terms of our size, we punch above our weight in so many different ways that it is hard not to feel civic pride when you think about this place. I admit, like, I feel it. When people say to me on my travels, you live in South Dakota, like, by yourself? I go along with it. I'm like, yeah, it's just me and a few cows, and it's really lonely, and the last thing you should do is ever move here <laughs> because it's actually wonderful, right? It, it's, it's amazing. It's an amazing place, and, and, and I don't want to take anything away from that because I believe it with all of my heart, and I love it, and I'm grateful to God for having brought me here. At the same time, living in amazing places, there are problems that come along with that. Right? There are problems that come along with living in a good place like we do, surrounded by the kind of good people that are all around us. Cities like ours need more grace, not less, because we're prone to thinking places like ours don't need it at all. That the people who need it are out there. It's those sad people who don't get to live here. 
who have to encounter all these terrible things in life that we don't experience, they need grace, and we should send people to them and help them. But but we've got it covered. The sad truth is that that one of the byproducts of living in, in a wonderful place, surrounded by wonderful people, is it blinds us. It blinds us to what our needs truly are. That's why this church has to live up to its name. It is not enough to call it grace and be done. It has to be grace. The culture of this place has to exude grace because if we're not about grace, then this city doesn't need us. Then there's no point to what is happening here. Problem is, how do we know it's really grace? Like, if, if people tend to be blinded to grace, well, how do we know that, that this is really it? Like, how do we recognize the real thing from an imposter? There are a lot of ways to go about this, but my favorite one is, is uh, backlash. I feel like you can be assured that you're saying the right things and living the right, right way uh, when you create the same kinds of problems for yourself that New Testament authors have. If people object to what you say and what you do the way that people objected to what they say and what they do. Um, the, the best example of this, some of you have heard me talk about this before, uh, Paul's rhetorical questions in the book of Romans. When he lays out his doctrine, he advances his argument by bringing up these questions he imagines you're going to have based on what he's saying. And I love these questions because they're the same questions that people tend to ask us as well. Doesn't the way you talk about grace open the door to people not keeping the rules because they know that however much they sin, grace will abound? What's the incentive to be good if God's going to forgive everybody? Doesn't really make sense. But that's exactly the question that Paul deals with in Romans 6, verse 1. So the fact that, that we talk about grace in ways that make moralists uncomfortable like there's going to be more forgiveness than they're comfortable with, that's a good thing because people had the same anxiety when Paul talked about grace. But hey, wait a second. Doesn't the way you talk about election and predestination mean that God is unjust? I get this a lot. And I'm comforted when I do that so did Paul. That's a question that Paul entertains in Romans 9, verse 14. There's another question that follows after. Doesn't the way you talk about God's sovereignty mean that God can't hold anyone responsible for their actions? Since we're all basically puppets. People ask this of Calvinists a lot, but they also ask it of the Apostle Paul. He answers it in Romans 9, verse 19. Now, Paul's answer to each of these rhetorical questions is no. Like the thing that you think I'm saying is not really what I'm saying. You got to listen and and hear what I'm saying. I like to think the answer is no, but I'm glad you asked because it gives me a chance to explain why it's not what you think it is. But it also gives me some assurance that we must be doing something right. We must be talking about this the right way because it raises the same questions that the right way always does. And that feels good. It feels reassuring, but here's the rub. We can't congratulate ourselves and pat ourselves on the back for the culture of grace that we have created here just because our doctrine raises the same kinds of questions that Paul's does. We can start feeling good 
about where we're at when the good people of our city have reason to look down their noses at us and say, they receive sinners and eat with them. As much as I delight in, in, in getting the same backlash that Paul did for his theology, shouldn't we delight more in getting the same backlash that Jesus did for the way he lived and what he did? Let's not be satisfied until very moral and upright people in our community feel we've just gone a little too far when it comes to receiving sinners and eating with them. It makes me uncomfortable how broad these people at Grace are. Their table, it's too big. There are too many people at it who shouldn't be there. That's when we can start feeling encouraged, when it's not just our theology that raises the backlash, but our lives and our community and everything gets that same pushback. Now, to get there... There's a little bit of hard teaching that we have to take on board. And uh, for some, this is going to be a harder thing to say than for others. But, but what Jesus reveals himself about himself at the table, what he reveals about himself at the table, it challenges conservatives and progressives alike. It challenges conservatives and progressives alike. I'm not one of those people who it, it likes to use political language to talk about theological realities. So when you say things like, is this a conservative church? Are you conservative theologically? I would prefer to say we're striving to be orthodox theologically because I think a lot of our political judgments exist on a spectrum that is ever-changing, right? To be conservative in one era is to have been a radical in the era before. You get the idea. Whereas God is actually laying out a truth that is unchanging, and it's difficult to speak of it in these terms. So with that qualifier and with the admission that, that I'm going to paint with a broad brush here, I want us to think about the way in which the call of the gospel in our lives challenges our political comfort, challenges the way that we think about the community that God has placed us in. Another way of thinking about this is self-righteousness lives on the left and also on the right. The Pharisees and the scribes, when they accuse Jesus and they say, this man receives sinners and eats with him, they are voicing an objection that we could argue is a sort of quintessentially uh, conservative one. It's the most conservative people in a church who are likely to have these kinds of objections. The problem is you're consorting with sinners. You're rubbing shoulders with people who are not pure, who are not worthy, and that is going to taint you as well. You shouldn't be receiving sinners and eating with them. You should be separating yourself from them. You should be living a life that is apart from them, so that by your example, they can learn to be more like you. The last thing in the world you want to do when confronted by sinners is to welcome them and embrace them and not let them know that it is not okay to live the way they live. You get the idea. But there's another way of objecting to what's happening at the table here. And you might think of this as, as a more characteristic 
objection of our more progressive times. Jesus is receiving sinners and eating with them. In the eyes of the Pharisees, it's a bad thing because these people aren't worthy of that kind of union. Uh, From our perspective, it's a bad thing in a different way, which is that you can't receive sinners and eat with them until you've labeled something sinful. And we've got a hard time with people labeling other people's behaviors, desires, identities, whatever you want to call it, as sinful. So where there's one objection from this end of the spectrum, there's another one from the other. And it's wrong to consort with those people. It's wrong to say those people are any different from us. We shouldn't be calling things sin. We shouldn't be consorting with people who sin. You get the idea. But of course, human nature being what it is, even those who believe we shouldn't call anything sin still do manage to see certain things as sinful. And there's no table set by human beings that's open to everyone. There's always somebody who is unworthy to sit at that table. There is always someone who is transgressing what mustn't be transgressed. The point of this is to say that no ideology has a monopoly on self-righteousness. You can't take any comfort in the idea that, that I'm not one of those Christians. Whether you mean one of those Christians on the right or those Christians on the left, there should be no comfort in that because self-righteousness knows no sides. As human beings, we're capable of being self-righteous from any perspective and in the course of that, blinding ourselves to grace. So if we as a community are going to get grace right, then we've got to do at least two things that are happening here at the table with Jesus. We've got to acknowledge the reality of sin. So that requires letting God be the one who says what's sin and what's not. Accept it where he condemns it and don't condemn what he allows. Let him be the judge, not us. It requires that humility in order for us to be a culture of grace. But if we're willing to let God name sin and label it and say what is sinful, then we also have to follow Christ in his example of how to respond to it and how to live in its presence. In other words, it's not enough to call sin, sin. We also have to long for reconciliation. We have to respond to sin the way Jesus did by receiving sinners and eating with them. When I talk about creating a culture of grace, what I don't mean is that we need to create a culture of grace. That we, as, as Christians here, need to come up with a way to make our walk match our talk. It's actually something different than that. I don't believe we can create a culture of grace ex nihilo out of nothing. We're not creative like God is. All we can do is give form to the stuff God has made. What we can do is acknowledge what God is already doing in us to see the work of grace already afoot in our lives. And once we see it and acknowledge it to try to be faithful as God not only works grace in us, but works it through us in reconciling sinners to himself. 
Jesus Christ creates a culture of grace, a culture of honesty and a culture of forgiveness that helps us understand the relationship between our actions and our identity. One of the movies I always share with students at Worldview Academy is a 2006 Hollywood issue movie called Blood Diamond. It was made to raise awareness about the problem of conflict diamonds. The reason that I share it with students is that unlike almost every other Hollywood issue movie, somehow this one manages to be good. And I think there's a reason for it. Usually, uh, if a movie or any kind of art decides it's going to preach, it preaches poorly. And, and you don't really get the message because you feel like propaganda has been... been uh, beating you over the head. But, but this film actually manages to preach and do it well, only I don't think the message it preaches is the ones the screenwriters intended. And maybe that's the point. Um, there are two narratives, two tracks running side by side in the film, for those of you who haven't seen it. I won't spoil it too much, but, but essentially you have two kinds of redemption. One of them is Hollywood redemption. One is the real thing. If you read a book on screenwriting, you will discover that, that every blockbuster movie needs to have an element of redemption. And as a Christian, you hear that and think, great, Hollywood is finally getting it. And all the movies I see now will be wonderful because they'll be full of redemption. But of course, what the screenwriters mean by redemption is not what the Bible means by redemption. Hollywood redemption is essentially you build into your character some sort of a fear or flaw and in order psychologically to move on with their life or to resolve their issues, they need to confront that flaw and accept it, make peace with it, or somehow overcome it. It's the reason why in so many movies you, you see this formulaic pattern repeating itself. Characters are introduced, they have one defining fear, and you know by the end of the movie they're going to have to face that fear so that they can move on. And when they do it, you're going to feel good about it. So this is the same way. Um, in Blood Diamond, there's a mercenary who's after this giant diamond, and he is exploiting people. He's using people. He's really a bad guy. Uh, but he's played by Leonardo DiCaprio, so it's hard to hate him. You sympathize with him as he goes through and does all these terrible things. And there's a moment where the film slows down, and, and Leonardo talks to this wise older man who sort of gives him some counsel. And they start talking about human nature. And, and they talk about the question of whether or not people are inherently good. And they both agree that people are not inherently good, which for Hollywood is amazing. But what they say is this, people are not inherently good, they're just people. It is what they do that makes them good or bad. A moment of love, even in a bad man, can give meaning to a life. That sounds beautiful. It resonates a little bit if you've got a Hallmark card that said a moment of love, even in a bad man, can give meaning to a life. Uh, you might worry about people's perceptions of you, but at least you'd know there's hope. Obviously, what the filmmakers are doing, they're telegraphing the end of the movie. Uh, they're telling you what needs to happen. The bad man being referenced is obviously Leonardo DiCaprio's character, and in order to give meaning to his life, he will have to perform some selfless act at the end of the film to redeem his storyline. 
And if that's all that happened in this movie, we wouldn't be talking about it. But it turns out there's another parallel track. Uh, one of the people that his character is exploiting to find this diamond is the man who found it. His name is Solomon. Uh, he is a worker in one of these mines. He finds the diamond and now is being used on this quest, but he doesn't care about finding a diamond. He's looking for his son, who's been taken from him and forced to become a child soldier. So you have these two quests running side by side. One selfish person on a quest to make himself rich at all costs, but don't worry because by the end he's going to do this, this momentary good thing and you're going to feel wonderful about it. But then there's this father who's being ruthlessly exploited but doesn't care because he's on a quest of his own to redeem his lost son. And when he's reunited with his son, this child soldier, his son turns on him and points a gun at him and threatens to kill him because he no longer recognizes his father as his father. So his father comes to him and speaks to him in this very moving scene and essentially reclaims him through love. And he says these words to his son, They made you do bad things, but you are not a bad boy. I'm your father who loves you, and you will come home again and be my son. The first time you see it, you're just weeping, and, and the music is, is beautiful and, and everything. But, but the 20th time you see it, something clicks, and you say to yourself, wait a second. Wait a second. The main character of this film earlier in the movie said, it is what we do that gives meaning to our life. We are our actions. But now this father, in the course of reclaiming his son, has said something different, something deeper. I know they made you do bad things, he says, but you are not a bad boy. And then he tells him who he is. I am your father. You are my son. It's a powerful and moving scene that undermines the trite redemption that has gone before it and will come after it. So that once that scene takes place, Leonardo DiCaprio can do his best. You just don't feel it. Because you've seen real redemption, and in comparison, Hollywood redemption can't hold a candle. We aren't just the product of our actions. We aren't just what we do. Our actions reveal our identity, but there is something deeper going on. There's a deeper stamp on us. It's true, we are sinners. We do sin because we are sinful, because our nature is broken by sin. But there is a deeper truth about us as well. We are stamped in God's image. And God reclaims us. Jesus unites sinners to himself. Jesus receives us. Jesus eats with us. And at the table, he restores our identity, remakes us into who we were meant to be. Grace is a community built around longing. Grace is a church where people who are seeking more grace and more depth and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. But when we talk about finding your way, we mean it in a much richer and deeper way than it may sound. Because when you're at the table with Jesus Christ, finding your way 
is tantamount to finding yourself. Jesus shows us, reveals to us through his work, not only who he is, but who we are as well. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.